What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity, the unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. And welcome into the Ringerverse, your Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. I am Ben Lindbergh, a senior editor for The Ringer, and joining me on Button Mash is Matt James, Ringer deputy art lead and man who has opinions about plant life on Pandora. Matt, welcome and well, Nagate Kamei, which means I see you in Navi. <laughs> I'm glad you translated because... <laughs> I've been playing this game a lot and I, I needed that translation still. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. I didn't tell you that we're doing our entire Avatar segment today in Navi. You did not. No. Oh, that was in the outline. You must have. Oh, this is awkward. Anyway, probably should have mentioned that. We are going to give you our spoiler-free impressions of Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. Don't worry, they will be English language impressions. This is the new Ubisoft-published open-world game that came out on all platforms last week. This is the James Cameron Avatar, to be clear, not the animated Avatar. Though really... Aren't Cameron's movies mostly animated too? <laughs> I think they kind of qualify. <laughs> we will use that game to talk about the evolution of the much maligned movie tie-in video game. And then we will name the best of that bad genre with our all-time top five movie tie-in games. But before we set off for Pandora, like the Dreamwalkers we are, let's discuss some news. It's been an eventful few days in gaming. The Game Awards were last Thursday. And the results weren't super surprising. Baldur's Gate won Game of the Year and the most total awards. Alan Wake cleaned up too, loved to see it. But the biggest topic of discussion about the ceremony, not for the first time, has been the short amount of time that the Game Awards devoted to, well, awards. Of the three-hour and 34-minute broadcast, 41 minutes 
was devoted to awards, or roughly 19% of the total airtime. And only about 10 minutes went to speeches by the winners who were told by a teleprompter to please wrap it up after 30 seconds and then played off with music. Matt, what do you make of this perennial but increasingly acute criticism of the Game Awards? And what do you think the ideal breakdown of airtime would be? Here's the thing. I I very much enjoyed watching the Game Awards this year. Oh, sorry, Matt. You're out of time. I'm Please out wrap of time. It up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh How my does it gosh. feel? It How doesn't does it feel? feel. It doesn't feel good. No, it doesn't, it doesn't. feel good. Probably doesn't. That's a nice little surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you saying? Because you actually have more than a few seconds to speak. Well, on yeah, this podcast. cut me off. If if you've got really cool games to announce, cut me right off. <laughs> I don't really care about the awards mm-hmm. at the Game Awards. Yeah, I'm really. What's getting me there year after year now is the game reveals, it's the trailers, it's the announcements. Um, And, you know, I, I actually, I understand the criticism you want, you want to have game developers and game creators on stage talking about things and they deserve the spotlight. Absolutely. I really think that the mix right now is exactly where I want it, except for the fact that I really do think that they should be highlighting the indie developers more like the, they mm-hmm. didn't have the indie game of the year award as, as an award where the, you know, the winner comes to the stage and speaks. And I think that, you know, I'm not the only one who's criticizing this. It's widely being criticized on the internet. And I think that's valid. Like, the indie developers, the, the the smaller developers, like those are the people that we really want to see get their time to shine. And as much as I loved, you know, watching Sam Lake continuously <laughs> come up for Alan Wake 2, we've seen him plenty, you know, Let, right. let's let's let some indie devs get get some shine on that stage. Yeah. I'm torn because on the one hand, there is something super crass and commercial about turning an award show into a glorified infomercial. And yet the infomercial is pretty entertaining, too. <laughs> so <laughs> it maybe, is. It, maybe it speaks to the way that the artistic value of games was dismissed for so long. It's almost as if the Game Awards have internalized that discounting from the cultural gatekeepers and said, mm-hmm. well, the art alone isn't worthwhile. So let's focus on the commerce. But yeah, on the other hand. I care less and less about awards and award shows in general, and I was totally fine with there not being a quote-unquote Oscars of gaming, which I don't say to dissuade anyone from listening to our Games of the Year show coming up later this month, but (laughs) but ultimately, yeah, right. But it's a pretty personal, subjective question. Your Game of the Year may not be my Game of the Year, and that's a good thing. And I think it's interesting to hear people talk about why they loved or didn't love a game, and maybe someone making an impassioned defense of a game could sway me somewhat. But Mm. ultimately, an award show's pick doesn't affect my own evaluation that much, right? And it's not like we need an award show in 2023 to tell us which game games are generally believed to be good. I mean, Metacritic and OpenCritic and IMDb are going to tell us what the crowdsourced critical or public consensus is. Yeah. And the other thing to consider is that, you know, the award show structure, you know, that that came out of, you know, TV and movies where you have lots of star power. It's star power, star power, star power. And in the gaming community, certainly every year, as we go by, like there are more sort of stars in the game industry. I mean, like when Kojima comes out on stage, it's like, oh my God, like yeah. the, when Spielberg comes out at the Oscars, right? <laughs> Kojima is not told to wrap it up in 30 seconds. He has all He's the time not, he wants, apparently. And neither is his translator. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so just inherently, the games industry doesn't have 
that consistent level of star power. So from an entertainment perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense to, you know, make the Game Awards entirely award speeches from 70% people you've never heard of, right? Right. Yeah, I feel bad saying that because I want them to get to take their bows and get their flowers, but yeah. it's true. Well, ultimately, this is an entertainment product, right? Yeah, right. And they aren't celebrities on the same level as the people who make music or the people who appear in movies or on TV because the people who make the games usually aren't on your stereo or on your screen, except for Sam Lake, right? Yeah, and as happy as, as I am for them, which I'm very happy for them, I'm going to naturally be more entertained by you telling me that there's a new crazy taxi coming out it, and showing me footage of that. It's true. That's that's what the game designers do well is design games. They aren't professional performers or entertainers in a get on a stage and sing and dance and deliver an amazing monologue kind of way. Although and there was great singing and dancing on there stage was some, in the Game Awards. Which I would <laughs> welcome, yeah. And let's face it, long award speeches where the winner is thanking everyone they've ever known or worked with aren't always riveting TV. So mm. it's tough because a lot of other award shows have seen their ratings decline lately and the Game Awards audience seems to be increasing. And I wonder if that's because it's barely an award show. There mm. are real game award shows like the Dice Awards, but I don't think they're watched by as many millions of viewers. Maybe you just need a spoonful of trailers to make the awards go down. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that actually, you know, the Game Awards continued success each year. And, you know, it, it seems to be becoming a, a can't miss event within the community. I hope that the Dice Awards, you know, sort of get to that same level eventually, because the Dice Awards is really a great thing that seems to take its awards a lot more seriously. Yeah. Um, and I, but that's great. I think that, you know, what's the point of having all multiple award shows that do the same thing? So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, let the game awards be the game awards. Let's just put more focus on, let's get more eyes on dice awards. Yeah, I think the balance was slightly out of whack, unless you're just going to rebrand it as Winter Game Fest and be open about what it is. <laughs> Maybe a few more awards in the Game Awards or just more celebrations of games that exist instead of hype for what's coming. More live performances like the Alan Wake one or instead of having people speed run their speeches, have some speedrunners or competitive players come up and show off the gameplay, do some skits. I don't know. I'd be there for that kind of thing. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. But there is some skits did you yeah. see Gon the gonzo chicken yeah. skit we have jeff keely in the yeah maybe uh, not just more of that playing second, along but. with the muppet i was it's entertaining <laughs> <laughs> would have rather heard an indie dev talk than than gonzo obsessed yeah. over chickens but Probably. only by a little bit only, only by, a little, by bit. a little bit yeah i mean the thing is that the announcements are compelling and since they are clearly pushing the promos, then we will follow their leads and we will pick one thing that each of us was most excited about from these shows. I mean, just so many announcements, right, of sequels and trailers coming out. It is really good at getting you hyped for what's coming, even if it's not that great at celebrating what has already arrived. <laughs> I did get very hyped during yeah. the Game Wars numerous times. And it wasn't from speeches. <laughs> what was your most exciting moment? My most exciting moment? I mean, can I give you three? Can, sure. we, can I give you Go three? Ahead. You can smuggle some in there. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to talk about Marvel's Blade. Mm -hmm. That trailer for Blade was so cool. Blade yeah. the Marvel vampire getting his own game, which, you know, was something that we knew was gonna happen but yes wow which, the art nice, style the, the status of the blade movie has been somewhat in doubt but this is looking yeah. good 
This was very exciting. Very, very exciting. I can't wait to see some more of that. Also, just that return of Sega. And, you know, yes. if you're younger, you probably don't really care about this but if you're an old head like me (laughs) i care the the sega announcement everybody was sort of speculating what is sega gonna announce what what is the game that they seem to be hyping up before the game awards and it turns out there are many games Mm -hmm. i like couldn't even process the trailer that they were showing because i was like wait are they they're they're making all of these jet set radio crazy taxi shinobi golden axe streets of rage they're all coming back and from the video footage it all looked really great. The Shinobi footage looked really awesome. I don't really care about Golden Axe, <laughs> even <laughs> as an old head. Yeah. But Streets of Rage, Crazy Taxi, Jet Set Radio, these are really great franchises that, you know, Streets of Rage, actually, they've put some 2D versions out lately that are yeah. great. But the, but the others have been dormant for a long right? time. Yeah. yeah, and these are franchises that have rubbed off on so many other game makers, and you can see bits of them in so many other games. And it's like, Sega, you're sitting on this gold mine here. Just give us more of that. So I was also very excited to see that they're going to capitalize on some of that IP. Absolutely. And then, of course, the announcement of OD, mm-hmm. the new Kojima game. Whatever speaking, it is. <laughs> speaking of star power, yeah, having not only Kojima come out, but having Jordan Peele come out and them announce that they're sort of partnering on this thing. Very exciting. I mean, there's that star power that you're talking about, like Jordan mm-hmm. Peele. This is increasingly, you're, you're bringing the Oscars into the Game Awards now. Yeah, sometimes a little too much. Sometimes, sometimes the movie stars come out and they're like, did they uh, know yeah. where they are and why they're here? <laughs> was the appearance fee just so big that Al Pacino was like, sure, I'll go to your Game Awards. But sometimes if they're really into it, you know, if you're talking Keanu or something, you can never be mad about a Keanu sighting. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, the, I mean, I have 10 other things I could talk about. What, what, what did you yeah. find super exciting? I mean, obviously, the latest Skull and Bones release date announcement. <laughs> I'm sure this one's going to stick. February 16th. Circle that day on your calendar. There's no way this is slipping. We're, we're finally going to get that game. No, I, I think probably it's God of War just because the release date for that is this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, right? Love a good game announcement where there's no wait whatsoever. That's that's, right. That's the nice thing about the Game Awards is that typically the announcements tend to be for things that are coming soon, whereas in old E3 or some of the summer showcases, it's, you know, years away, right? It's speculative. You might not have a release date, whereas typically with these, it's, okay, we're going to get this sometime soon, maybe immediately in this case. So the fact that we're getting God of War DLC, that there is a a rogue light that is coming out this week that somehow will take Kratos on a deeply personal and reflective journey which is not something I associate with roguelites, really, or, or just Are you of... excited about the roguelite <laughs> element of it? Or, or is mean, that just like you'll take whatever God of War you yeah, can get? Yeah, it's, it's more I trust that this will be worth it, and this is exciting, mm. and this is an expansion that I was not expecting, and there's zero wait for it. So. Well, I'm happy for you. I got Final Fantasy 16 DLC that yes, actually that's dropped right. immediately, not even a short wait. So yeah, I installed I, that right away. I'm running around... The surprise release. I I hope that's a trend, right? Like Baldur's Gate Xbox version dropped immediately after it was uh, announced Mm -hmm. to be ready, right? It's that high-fi rush edification of gaming announcements. (laughs) We just, we we need that high-fi high again. 
Yeah, if you can keep a secret in the games industry, good, <laughs> good on you. Yeah, it's tough because games take several years to make and uh, they're so expensive that sometimes you do need to drum up interest as you go. But if it works, like if you're Final Fantasy or God of War and you don't need to have months of hype and, and anticipation because you know people will be hyped for that whenever they get it, then yeah. I think you can you can get away with that. I think it's the right move for, for DLC as well and expansions. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you don't want to overhype those because they're smaller experiences so the surprise of a dlc is makes a lot of sense versus hyping up a small expansion i love that we're getting a second season of twisted metal just (laughs) so much that i was excited for but we will get to that down the road yeah one more thing i just wanted to talk to you about this Mm -hmm. is is psvr2 already dead (laughs) and (laughs) i hope we we got one game announcement for psvr2 And the other VR game, the other VR game announced Asgard's Wrath 2 is a MetaQuest 3 game. Yeah, we got to do a VR episode of Button Mash. Just what is going on here? Because I am a PSVR owner. I'm not a PSVR 2 owner. You got to give me more reasons Uh, to get that thing. I want to believe, but (laughs) yeah. And speaking of star power, you had Matthew McConaughey come out for Exodus, which is not interstellar, but is close enough that you can just have Matthew McConaughey come out for the reveal. But Mm -hmm. ex-Bioware devs, huge sci-fi epic while Looks we all really wait for, for Mass Effect to get back on track. And another trailer that was shown there, although it was not the first trailer, we want to give you a quick reaction, our thoughts on Fallout, because we have finally seen some footage here. Fallout is coming out on Prime Video on April 12, 2024, the TV adaptation. It features Ella Purnell from Yellow Jackets, the great Walton Goggins, Kyle MacLachlan, many more. And it is made, of course, by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy of Westworld fame and or infamy. They are executive producing this thing with cooperation from Bethesda and Todd Howard. So how psyched were you for the prospect of a Fallout show in theory? And are you more or less excited for it now that we've gotten a good look at it? Uh, I tend to be kind of low on adaptations of video games. I I usually don't think it's necessary and I think you know, it's been getting better in recent years for sure, but, it, it, you know, sometimes it's a hit and sometimes it's not. And usually they're using properties I really care about and mean something to me. So mm-hmm. did I need a Fallout adaptation? No, but <laughs> it looks so good, Ben. It really does, right? <laughs> it looks like it, I couldn't like really fathom like a better team casting. Like it seems like it's in really good hands. It looks super good. Uh, visually, and I'm just really excited about it. And I'm usually not. I know. Yeah, I I had mixed feelings. I'm not the hugest Fallout fan, but I was Uh, interested. And as for Westworld, I dropped off of that show eventually, as I think many people did. And so I had some misgivings, but looking at it, it looks fantastic. They're saying all the things that you would want them to say about it. You've got a great cast. I will watch anything with Walton Goggins. They're going <laughs> practical effects heavy, which is nice to see when you can get away with it. And also, although Nolan and Joy are, are prominently involved here, the writers and showrunners are the people who made Tomb Raider and Captain Marvel, and then also Silicon Valley, Portlandia, Baskets, The Office. So you kind of have that mm-hmm. big IP video game sci-fi sort of background, but also the comedy background, which, which is, is really important. Right? Really That's important. What you want. And it seems like they're completely committed to translating that tone, which is, yes, it is a dystopian post-apocalyptic future, but it's funny. Yeah. And I don't have to like build a base 
while I'm watching it, <laughs> exactly. which is really good. Right. And they're kind of copying it to The Last of Us very consciously. Why wouldn't you? Obviously, after the success of that series. But, you know, there have been profiles written about it where they have invoked it and talked about how, oh, like The Last of Us, it touches on contemporary concerns and things that are going on in society, just trying to make it relevant like that. But also, I think the pairing of accomplished prestige TV creators who care about the property with the people who made the game. Yeah. I don't know that Todd Howard is as involved as Druckmann was, for instance, with The Last of Us, but obviously you have people who care about the game, know about the game, who are stewarding this thing, and it looks like they've spent a lot of money on it. And it's canon. I don't know whether you think that's a good thing or not. It's not like the Halo show, let's say, I where it's sort of in a, a separate <laughs> timeline. Yeah, I don't particularly care either, but some people get very upset about that. Uh, but it, it's <laughs> not, it, this thing isn't what it was in the game. <laughs> it's a perfect impression. That's what everyone Sorry, sounds Neil, like when they say that. The entire but, internet sounds like that. Related to what we'll be talking about later, it's not a direct adaptation of the games or any particular game, but an original story told within that universe, which honestly is my preference, all yeah. else being equal. I'm hyped. I'm very hyped about it. Can't wait. And and if this is the way forward for adaptations involving those game makers, those game designers who came up with the idea first, like I'm, I think that's a really great idea. Let's let's keep doing that. It keeps working. So we will definitely be covering that show at the Ringiverse next year. And now that we have told you what's coming in video games, we will tell you what's coming on this feed. It is time for programming notes. The clock will not strike midnight this week. The Midnight Boys are taking a break, a much-deserved break, but they'll be back next Friday with an Aquaman pod. You can also stay tuned for Mint Editions, things we missed in 2023 recap one week from today. This week on House of R, Mal and Joe are recording an episode on the third Doctor Who anniversary special as Matt and I speak. And on Friday, they'll be back with their top 10 moments of 2023 in nerd culture. And of course, coming up on Button Mash later this month, our Games of the Year discussion and debate. Email us at ringerversegaming at gmail.com with your gaming highlight of 2023. And maybe we will read some of your messages on the show. Now, Let's turn to the matter at hand, the new game that has been released with, I would say, a surprising lack of fanfare, given the prominence of the IP and the people involved here, Avatar Frontiers of Pandora, which is an open-world action-adventure game developed by the Ubisoft-owned Massive Entertainment. They're the makers of The Division and the upcoming Star Wars Outlaws, a game whose career I will watch with great interest. <laughs> this game was announced in 2017. So yes, shocking, an Avatar property took a long time to come out. But we've both been playing it, and even though it hasn't gotten a ton of hype, it, it hadn't really been shown off a lot to the extent that people weren't aware that this is actually a first-person game, which I think surprised people. It certainly surprised me. But we spent a lot of time with this, and you know what? It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> I would here. Hold on. Hold on. You know what? I would say that yeah. it's, it is good. Wow. You go so far as to say it I is good. I would go so far. I My am goodness. enjoying it. And wow. you know what? I don't care about the movies at all. <laughs> okay. I don't I don't care about when I go to I've seen both of them. Yeah. I I have moderately enjoyed some of my experience yeah, with the movies. Right. It's, it's, it's not an IP I'm passionate about, but nor am I an Avatar hater who's like, there's no cultural currency and why do these movies make so much money and grumble grumble? They're fine. You know, I enjoyed my time at the theaters. 
I, I hate, I can be a hater about them and enjoy them at the same time. <laughs> sure. um, but I think I, you know, I've always said that like, you know, these Avatar movies are stunning visually, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I would actually rather watch like a planet earth style, David Attenborough narrated documentary of the Avatar world, Pandora. Yes. Sometimes it's, it seems <laughs> like that's the movie that Cameron really wants to make. And it's like, yeah. look, it just dropped the story and everything. Just, you know, show us the, the lush foliage of Pandora. Yeah, let me see that bioluminescence. Hit yes. me with that natural, yeah, <laughs> right? I want to see that. So I actually, you know, I mean, I've always speculated this. I, I think I enjoyed the Avatar video game experience way more than the movie experience. I think it works better as a video game because these these story elements are often overwrought and and not super developed and cliched and it's it's you know sometimes it's a little cringy Mm-hmm. The Avatar stuff. Um, I think that applies to every Avatar story that we've ever seen. But yes, <laughs> no different here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that the game is successful in a lot of noteworthy ways. And the negatives are kind of things that you could guess right off the jump. Like the worst thing about this game, in my opinion, is just that it exists uh, under all of the you know tropes of what a Ubisoft open world game looks like, right? I have open world game fatigue, mm-hmm. as many people do from the past 10 years of gaming. Big map dots on it. Go do the thing. Check it off. New thing. And to a degree, like that's my greatest criticism is that, yeah, it feels like that. So if you're kind of tired of open world games, yeah, as much as they do right, you're still gonna kind of feel that fatigue this episode is brought to you by state farm you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong but these are the words you really need to remember like a good neighbor state farm is there they've got options to fit your unique insurance needs meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need have coverage options to protect the things you value most File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Yeah, it's interesting. I would take a slightly different stance, which is to say that, yeah, it's an open world game and it's a Ubisoft open world game. But if anything, I want more of the standards Ubisoft open world game formula in this game, which is not something Whoa. that I would usually say because I felt that fatigue too. Please elaborate. But there's not that much to do in this game. At least that's how it <laughs> feels to me. Like, okay, if you're going to make an Avatar game, it has to look really pretty because it's Avatar and it does. So it completely yeah. delivers on that score. This is a beautiful game. It's one of the better looking games that I've ever played probably, right? I actually, the, one of my, I think my greatest praise for the game is that I think it is one of the most 
interesting and beautiful like natural environments yes in 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 the history of gaming like the you know usually in a game like you, you if you're going through a forest it's sort of like an in-between between the things that are there right mm-hmm. and the vegetation and the forest structure and the the game design around the topography it's really really amazing it is right <laughs> it is a and a game experience that I think, you know, I, I don't know if I recommend everyone buy this game at full price, but I think, you know, if your friend has it or something like go check it out because the, the environments are noteworthy. Yeah, they it really the, are the best looking plants I've probably ever seen in a video game, which maybe is not the super sexiest a, way to sell it. <laughs> that's a really unappealing <laughs> way They're to probably sell. not going to like put that as the pull quote on the box, but still it's impressive because you know how even now where we have everything ray traced to hell like when you crouch down and look at a leaf in a game often it's like you've been transported back to ps1 era you know Mm -hmm. it's like suddenly it's 2d and it's kind of pixelated and weird whereas when you get up close with this game i was playing on ps5 but probably any platform it looks fantastic you know you get as close as you want it has an effect where it kind of turns transparent almost. But beyond that, like you can just see like the little drops of dew, the condensation running yeah. down these luscious leaves. It is beautiful. There are no Final Fantasy fourteen cube grapes no. uh, to be found. It's exactly. a weird experience looking down and at your your blue avatar feet like <laughs> in, in like a shallow body of water and being like, oh, my God. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impressive. It really is. I spent a lot of time just looking around, but that's the thing. That was a lot of what I was doing because those environments, as lush and as alive as they are, they don't have a whole lot to do in them. They're not that populated by anything other than plants. You can kind of stumble across some sky people, some RDA marauders, and you will find little groups of Na'vi running around. But there aren't that many activities or things to collect. Like there's some stuff. And usually I'm happy about that because it's overload in Ubisoft games. But in this one, I felt like the world was alive in some ways, but kind of dead in other ways. It was like beautiful to look at and to navigate to navigate. navigate. Very good. <laughs> but it, it felt a little less interactive than I would like. I didn't find it to feel that sparse. I mean, it, there's a lot of things to kind of scavenge throughout the forest that you can use in crafting or 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 cooking. You know, I, I hate, hate crafting so much. And cooking. You hate crafting, and I hate cooking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you can't skip the cooking animation. No, we would both perish. <laughs> immediately if yeah, we were I'm just, I'm just not gonna eat i'm just not gonna cook this meat is what Too it much is trouble yeah, it's gonna I eat will, raw meat all, i'll be all my life yeah right exactly <laughs> so, but but i liked that for the purposes of the plot which is going to tie into our discussion of movie tie-in games it is sort of taking place contemporaneously with the second Avatar movie. It starts when the first Avatar movie starts, and then your character kind of goes into cryosleep for a while and wakes up as the second Avatar movie is happening. So you're sort of aware of those larger events, but you don't directly experience them. You're not 
replaying the things that you've seen on the screen already. It's an original story that kind of runs in parallel with those stories and reportedly will also perhaps tie into the next Avatar movie. This is canon too, if you care about Avatar canon, which, hey, some people really do. I've seen how to with John Wilson, right? But (laughs) if you're not super into Avatar lore, that is perfectly okay. If you just Mm -hmm. saw those movies and you thought, this is pretty, I want to go to there. I wish I could walk around there. Then this is the game for you. The plot's not terrible. You know, basically, yeah, you wake up after cryosleep and you play a Navi who was sort of rescued, quote unquote, by the sky people as, as a child. And so they are being introduced to Navi culture as people who've been separated it from it for their whole life. So they don't, they have very few memories of what it is to be Navi. And so they are learning They're They're trying to relearn their cultures. They meet different specific Navi tribes and interact with them and learn, you know, Oh, what their tribe It's actually not bad as a plot. I'm, I'm actually finding it maybe better than the plot of the movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. James Cameron takes some notes from frontier. of. Pandora, I expected you know? to just, I expected to just be tapping the, the, the skip button, right? Just tapping that B button everywhere. And instead of holding B to skip the dialogue entirely, I'm just hitting B tapping it to skip individual lines faster. So uh-huh. that's a huge win yeah, for them, for me. The, the ultimate flattery, really, not skipping yeah. everything. Yeah, and it is fun to just run around as a big blue person, right? Yeah, because the, the mobility of it feels yes. quite good. If anything, I would want to run even faster, but it does feel fast. You're not like slow and lumbering. You are really booking it. And also you can kind of climb almost everything. So you're just sort of mantling. You can just climb up boulders and rocks mm-hmm. as long as there's some sort of purchase there. You can't always tell, can I climb that or not? A lot of times I tried and then fell. But you do feel like just a giant blue alien. And I especially like how huge you are compared to the humans. Because <laughs> whenever you go into a human base or you're fighting humans, they are basically, they're at crotch level, right? Which like... Yeah. You're hitting your head everywhere in this game. Yeah, it it makes you feel empowered. (laughs) That like helps with the immersion. I actually feel like I am this uh, giant blue humanoid. I know you're just the people are so tiny. It it just feels like you're Victor Wembanyama just walking around everywhere. I know makes me want to be a Navi. So did you unlock the uh, Irkon, the uh, flying horse dragon? I I believe it's the Ikron match. Ikron, Ikron, you know. Since I studied my Navi before Ikron, we, we yeah, came on the expert. Yes, I, I did. But the problem is it takes several hours to unlock your flying bonded beast, yeah, or at least it, it, it took did a for while. me. Yeah, which narratively makes sense mm-hmm. that you wouldn't just walk onto the back of these things. I mean, if you've seen the movies, you know it's not easy and you have to work your way up and you're climbing your skill tree and you're familiarizing yourself with the culture. And by the time you get it, it feels like a major accomplishment. Yeah, and it's a big game breaking because then you can sort of fly to all of the places that had been inaccessible. So. Exactly, but but before you get the Ikron, knowing that you are going to get it at some point, I'm like, just give me the Ikron. Like, I just want to fly. <laughs> Stop making me run everywhere. It's a really big map. <laughs> I will say, though, you know, the, the the segment of the game leading up to you actually getting your, I'm sorry, Ikron? <laughs> I believe so. Ikron? <laughs> yes. Very good. Really fun mm-hmm. climb to get up there. Very memorable moment. And then you kind of get on the thing and you're like, man, the, the, the control of your Navi feels so good. Surely yeah. when I get on this thing, it's going to be 
awesome. And you get on it and it actually, the feel of flying that thing kind of sucks. Mm, yeah. Which, yeah. which is surprising because, you know, you're just, it's so majestic looking, right? And you can leap off any platform and hit the up on your D-pad and your Ekron comes swooping under you and catches you to fly off. And, and, and it ends up feeling kind of slow. Yeah. And it yeah. ends up feeling kind of uh, jerky, mm-hmm. the motion. There isn't that sweeping, soaring feel, which is pretty disappointing. Yeah, you're right. That is a bit of a letdown. There are some beautiful YouTube videos where it's just like a person flies around Pandora on an Ekron for two hours, which I would highly recommend <laughs> if you just need some soothing background views. Yeah. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still fun. It yeah. still at times feels really great. But I, you know, given how that that on the ground feels, I thought that it would have a better feel to the air stuff, especially in tight quarters with with things around you. Sometimes you can get stuck on trees above you and just kind of be trapped on your flying thing that won't land and can't right get out of it, there. <laughs> it is completely different mechanics and controls. I am relieved that the on the ground controls feel as good as they do because first person platforming can be pretty dicey, right? Like this side mm. of Titanfall 2 or some really parkour type games. Sometimes it's hard to judge where you are in space. I'm sort of surprised that this isn't just a third person game. I don't know why they decided to do it this way. It, it works. It's fine. But I would have thought third person made more sense. I disagree because I think yeah. that the, the, the first person is very immersive. And True. man, if there's anything I want to do here, it's be immersed in this world. You know, speaking of VR, PSVR 2 being dead, like, mm. man, this would have... this. You know, I'm not going to, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to buy a PS VR 2 for an Avatar game. But if I had one, I would <laughs> definitely try to buy this game cheaply somewhere. Yeah, yeah and you're right. It would. I would probably then not even play the game. I'd just walk around, look at beautiful brooks. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if it were third person, I, I couldn't get as close to the plants. would be pretty disappointing. And in terms of the actual gameplay... I would say it's very Far Cry-esque, which is not surprising given the Ubisoft lineage here. And also, I would say somewhat Mm Horizon-esque, both in the crafting, you know, you got to pluck arrows from trees and uh, make new arrows anytime you want to shoot anything, or like highlighting weak points on the big mechs that you're fighting. That reminded me of Horizon. And it is just kind of like open world. You're going to bases. There's sort of a stealth aspect to it, mix of combat and exploration. There's also a lot of like, please find this particular rare plant, which you will spend an hour looking for if you're me. But the plant looks great when you find it, at least. So Mm -hmm. it did remind me of some other games. And then there's the crafting and the cooking and all of that, which I did as little of as possible. In fact, there's like a mechanic where you're supposed to eat food kind of constantly in order to regain your energy or heal or whatever, like the message at the bottom of the screen is always like, eat food. And I'm like, I don't want to eat food. This is a video (laughs) game. In real life, I have to eat food and I don't want to do it when I'm a blue alien running around Pandora. So I never quite figured out whether I have to do that or whether I can just keep getting away. I always have like low health. The amount that they make you eat, yeah. You would you would think that like the Navi are just very, you know, overweight, uh, <laughs> like no, fat th- creatures. They're all extremely trim because, yeah, because clearly you refuse to feed them. I, I guess they've got <laughs> great metabolisms. I don't know what it is. I didn't mind the food stuff 
too much. The cooking animation is pretty quick. What I did appreciate, there is some quality of life stuff that is good. Like you mentioned that, you know, you have to grab sticks to craft arrows. The Mm -hmm. arrow crafting is mercifully like while you're highlighting your bow in the weapon, uh, uh, net system you could you just hold a button right. to immediately craft ammo you can do yes. it you can do it in the middle of a fight if you just get behind cover you do have to hold down the button to pick up the raw materials which it's surprising how much of a difference that makes in horizon or in ghost of tsushima for instance yep. sometimes there's like an update where oh you can just press a button instead of holding it down you have to do it more often in those games probably in this one but it is just a beautiful game although it surprised me that the bodies of your enemies instantly disappear, at least uh, on the version that I was playing. That was uh, kind of odd because everything else looks so great. But beyond that, it's just a, a really polished package. Although you cannot select the Navi language. You can't listen to the whole game in Navi, which, you know, I thought if they're committing to the bit here, then do it. Although Man, I guess, I'm, just, I'm never going to learn this language. You know? I know. That's that's how you're going to pick up these phrases so we can conduct this entire podcast. I just come on the podcast. I'm going to be ignorant about this for years if they don't let me learn the language. You know, I guess in the second movie, it's like when Jake is fluent in Navi, then it just sounds to him like English does to us. And (laughs) so they get away with it that way. Right. So they are actually speaking it, I suppose. Do you have the problem aside from the crafting and the food, everything when in a game, there's just a ton of stuff to catalog which there is in this game, like you have a whole archive, like sort of a Tears of the Kingdom inventory system where you can just press L3 on PS5 when you look at any plant or animal and it will add that entry to your index. Do you feel a a compulsion to do that? Because I do, which is not great in a game like this when there are hundreds and hundreds of creepy crawlies everywhere that I'm like, got to catch them all. Yeah, you got to catch them all, right? No, I don't. I don't care about that, but I do have to get every dot off of my map. Ah, okay. Well, we're both prisoners to our <laughs> compulsions then, I guess. Just this different is why kinds I of have, compulsions. yeah, and this is, this is why I have open world game fatigue because I'm not the kind of person that can just be like, oh, there's like five things near me that, you know, near my, where I hope my home base where I live. And I'm just not going to go look at those. No, I can't do that. I got to clear all the dots on the map like a psychopath. Yeah, I'm trying to be more like that. Just like, you know what? Because I know that if I do hunt down every last dot, the second I finish that game and move on to the next game, I'm not going to care that I did that. I don't have any lingering sense of pride or accomplishment because I completed every subquest or I opened up every lab or whatever it is. So I try to tell myself, future you won't care at all that you spent all this time doing this. So present Mm. you doesn't have to. But I haven't completely convinced myself to that. (laughs) It's tough. How are you finding the combat in Avatar? Yeah, it's, you know, at first you're kind of limited to one arrow at a time. And I I found that the enemies are surprisingly, annoyingly accurate, where I'd be like sprinting and hopping away and somehow they're just peppering me with gunfire the entire time. I'd say it's okay. Like it's not a huge selling point to me, but it's, it's not actively warding me away from the game. Have you encountered the Grenadier mech? that somehow can fire grenades at you like (laughs) like two football fields away as soon as it notices you. Unerring accuracy. Yeah, I I have found that the stealth, maybe it's me, but I'm not very stealthy. Even after I unlock some of the stealth upgrades, I'm just bad at that generally. There's no stealth mechanic. 
Right? Really. It's like it's like it kind of presents you with like, oh, you could do it stealth, or you could go in there and fight everyone. And it's like, well, there's no stealth system. No, it's just like you have a a, a set amount of stealth that you can <laughs> upgrade, and it's like your likelihood of being noticed while you walk around, I guess. Yeah, and it's like there's no like, what do you just you, like the stealth is just like I don't know, like don't walk near them. But they're yeah. all near, like, the objective that you need to That's do. That's the so, thing. They're always like, you can creep in and out of this base and disable it, or you can take them all like, out. I can't, and I'm like, I can't I, creep never, any. I'm, like, eight no. feet tall and blue. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm not stealthing anywhere in this base. Like, <laughs> Yeah. We talked about that on the Assassin's Creed episode of Button Mash because I think stealth-focused games frustrate me sometimes, but then games that have stealth elements, quote-unquote, where they aren't really well implemented or clear and you can't really tell, like, am I in cover right now? Like, yeah, I guess it's the, no, it's the icon no splinter over, cell. No, right? <laughs> it, there's shadows and, like, icons telling me, you know, the field of view and yellow turns to red. There's just no warning whatsoever. So I pretty much always go in bow and arrow blazing. Yeah, I mean, the combat at times is okay, and at times I, I find it kind of frustrating. The arrows are very strong, which I like. The human weapons are also kind of strong, but you get hurt very easily, and like yes. you said, they're very accurate. And there will be times where you're like, man, this is kind of challenging to a ridiculous degree, and other times where you're like, man, I'm just melting through these enemies, no yeah. problem. Yeah, definitely some uneven difficulty unbalanced at times in the game. But maybe we can spin this out to this larger discussion because I think this really is what a movie tie-in game is these days, right? This is, I don't know if it's the best case scenario, but this is really the template where you're not just playing Avatar The Way of Water in game form. You are playing something in the Avatar universe. And the fact that this game is pretty good Makes me optimistic for Star Wars Outlaws, which, you know, I think the fact that they did justice to the source material here is a good sign, because mm. if it's Star Wars where I'm more invested in the source material, I'm going to care about that more. But this is the model of a modern movie game. I mean, we saw the same thing at the Game Awards. We got an announcement of Jurassic Park Survival, which is not just a playthrough of any particular Jurassic Park movie, which is a good thing, I think, given the most recent Jurassic Park movies, but is set in that universe and lets you play like it's Jurassic Park, right? So what do you think happened to the traditional movie game, the old school movie game, which almost always used to be you just play a video game version of the movie? And usually it sucked for reasons that we can get into, but that was the traditional archetype of the movie game. Why do you think that has gone away, maybe for the better? Well, I think there are two reasons. One is obviously that everyone caught on that movie game adaptations were terrible. Yeah. And two, just the nature of video games has evolved. Video games back in the heyday of you know the video game adaptation, they were very linear. You finish this first level, you get to the second level, you get to the third level. Very linear, just like the flow of a movie. In a modern gaming, there's so much more, you know, in an open world game, it's not nearly as linear. And I, I think that just the narrative, you'd have to insert a lot more stuff around that narrative. Otherwise, your game is just going to be, I don't know, the length of the movie, maybe twice as long if you're making, <laughs> padding mm -hmm. it with. And this is a thing that they used to do with video game adaptations. They would be like, well, the movie is kind of short, so let's just make this game really hard. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Or just some random sequence thrown in that wasn't in the movie. It's like, did, yeah, did that I got edited out? out or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bathroom break. Did I miss this scene? I think that is a big part of it. They just really poisoned the well with how bad most of the movie tie-in games were, which, look, they were clearly cash-ins. They were rushed. They were crunched. It was like, hey, we got to get this game out to coincide with the movie. And that's the really defining thing here. Not is the game good, but are we going to maximize the marketing opportunities here? So that's part of it. I think another part of it probably is that tie-in games, direct tie-in games don't really work as well online, I would think, because if you're just sort of playing the scripted events of the movie, how are you going to turn that into a multiplayer game, a live service game, a game that people are going to keep returning to? Also, games take so long to make now, at least big AAA games like Avatar, that it would be tough to develop them on a movie-making timeline, because most movies don't take as long to make as Avatar movies. And maybe it's also just that the balance of power in media has shifted. Now we're constantly talking about Hollywood adapting video games, right? Mm, so it's yep. it's not so much about, oh, inferior, you know, media come lately, video games. We're getting the scraps from the movies. They're going to let us make a game <laughs> version of their movie. Now, you know, games are as respected and as expensive and blockbustery as movies are, if not more so. I mean, yeah. way more revenue in the video game industry than the movie industry. So it's it's almost like it's the tables have turned, you know, yeah. it's like you, you want a movie tie into the video game now. Yeah, and you know, playing the Avatar game this week, I just I'm ready for the Titanic open world <laughs> James Cameron experience. Sure. Yeah. So I think things are better this way, certainly. And you still have movie adjacent games and sometimes they will be timed to kind of coincide with the movie, although this one kind of missed the Avatar 2 release window by a bit, but I think it's better. That it's just we're early sort of, for Avatar 3, actually. Maybe that's, you know? yeah, maybe that's the spin <laughs> that we can put on this. But we do want to salute the old movie tie-in game because they weren't all terrible. And in fact, the ones that were good, they really transcended the form and are even more impressive because they, they managed to avoid the pitfall, the movie tie-in trap. So we wanted to do our top five here, a salute to this basically long gone genre. And we were thinking maybe we'd each bring a top five, but then we thought we might just kind of have the same top five because there are only so many to choose from. Shockingly <laughs> you know? close to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Slim pickets. We did individual lists and there was a lot of overlap. So we're just going to present our combined top five here. Maybe we can quibble about the order and then we can toss in some others, some honorable mentions that, that might have yeah. meant more to one of us personally. But where do you think we should start here on the, the countdown? Let's start at number five, count upwards, Lord of the Rings. So we have a little bit of a debate here. Yes. I will say that number five is Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the 2003 mm -hmm. hack and slash on PlayStation 2. Mm -hmm. Ben, you will say that number five is what? Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, <laughs> which came out immediately <laughs> before Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Unsurprisingly enough. Yeah. We both liked both of these, I think, but for whatever reason, I have stronger, warmer memories of the Two Towers video games than I do of Return of the King. Yeah. And, you know, you're, I don't think you're right about that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, I think both games did a great job of making you feel like you're in the movie. In the, and, and it was a pretty successful adaptation. It was fun. The action had good weight to it and 
it was it felt epic in scale like yeah. the movie a lot of these adaptations don't feel epic like the movies that they're you know created to emulate but i remember playing the helm's deep level of the, the two towers game like over and over and over again and it it felt as epic to me as the movies i'm sure if i went back and played it 20 plus years later it would not but <laughs> at the time at least it did where do you stand on actors crossing over from a movie to a movie tie-in game do you want to hear the same people or even see models of the same people or would you rather have sound alikes or lookalikes or or not even oh I, I mean if you can actually get the actors then that's great otherwise you're just gonna it's just gonna feel like a cheap knockoff yeah i i feel conflicted about actors in video games that are not tie-ins sometimes i, I think it can be a bit distracting or a, a bit of a kind of like a publicity push that doesn't always serve the game the best, or at least originally when that started happening, when it was like, oh, look, we can get Hollywood actors in our video games now. Isn't this special? There are a lot of great voice actors. You don't always need to model your avatar, so to speak, on some celebrity, someone you know. But in a movie tie-in game, I think it's great if you can get it. There are some cases, you know, I've played so many Star Wars games where you have not Frank Oz doing Yoda and mm -hmm. not whoever doing whoever. And sometimes, you know, people will play those parts in shows and movies and for decades, and they're almost as closely associated with those parts as the originals. Sometimes not so much, though. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is someone doing a bad Yoda impression. Yeah, we have Yoda at home. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I also <laughs> find it can be a bit distracting in the Marvel games where, yeah, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's not a movie tie-in. But those characters in our minds are now just so associated with the actors who played those parts. And often some of the stories will have the same beats. So you have like kind of Tom Holland looking <laughs> Peter Parker yeah. or not even. And that can be a bit jarring. Yeah. So actually uh, one game that uh, kind of speaks to this recently was the Guardians of the Galaxy game. Yeah. Which I, I came into that and for the first couple of hours or so i was like man this just feels like a knockoff like i'm so used to the cast of the movie that every time i look at these characters and hear their voices it just feels cheap and off however by the end of that game which had a fantastic story to it really great voice acting by the end of that game i felt like that was the real cast oh. and and when I would watch the movies after that, I would be like, ah, it's just not, it's not my Star-Lord anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I had the same sort of reaction to Midnight Suns, although I didn't love the story as much in that game. I should say here, as we do this countdown, we are excluding games that are kind of modeled on the movie, but not directly based on it, which yeah. it's sort of a gray area, right? Like. We were 40,000 Star Wars games. <laughs> exactly. We can't just say like any game that has something to do with a movie or, or is based on IP that was originally movie because then it's every Star Wars game. But even something like Alien Isolation, which is very influenced by Alien, obviously, but does tell a different story or, you know, Chronicles of Riddick which is often mentioned on lists of the best movie tie-in games, surprisingly, because people don't typically mention that as one of the best movies. But the game was good, but it was a prequel. So we're really talking about games that stick to kind of by the numbers. We're playing through the events of the movie. So yeah. where do you want to go, number four? Number four, Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Latin's great. Classic platformer. Interestingly enough, you know, this is released on every system 
that was in existence practically at the time. The Super Nintendo and Genesis versions were made by completely different developers. <laughs> uh, the Genesis version was made by Virgin Games, and the SNES version was made by Capcom. And they are completely different, but somehow both really good games. <laughs> and you'll there are some pretty impassioned debates, or at least there were, on yeah. which version was better. <laughs> I guess they've subsided somewhat 30 years later, but somewhat. I played the, I mean, I had a Game Gear, and I remember the Game Gear version being my version of choice, which is mm-hmm. especially controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like, there were a lot of good game tie-ins at that era, sort of the 8-bit, 16-bit era, like the Batman NES game, or even earlier, Star Wars, the arcade game, which it was a bit before our time. You know, I played it when I was a kid, but Mm. at the time it was mind-blowing. Just, you know, you could play through the Death Star Trench Run. Oh my God. Yeah, it was like 3D. Right. In, in, even though it was in a, made, yeah. a virtual boy kind of way. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and like Super Star Wars, which could very well be on this list in that that is kind of a direct playthrough of the first Star Wars movie. Although unlike Aladdin, it came out many years after the movie mm-hmm. did. There's also Lego Star Wars. Those games are great. Yeah, that was a good era, I guess, for that, even though there was such a difference. Maybe this is another reason. I don't know. Like these days, if you were to play a direct tie-in game, it would basically look like the movie, you know, because like the effects, the graphics are pretty much on par at this point. Whereas back then playing a video game, it wasn't actually going to look like the movie, but it it would at least be differentiated. You wouldn't just feel like you were, you know, playing the thing that you just saw in the theater. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But man, Aladdin, man, that was a good one. And there's, you know, there's so much memorable music in the movie Aladdin Mm -hmm. and those kind of 16 bit versions of them really, really hit. And it was, well, and it was just a great platformer on top of that. It was a really good one. Number three. Number three, Spider-Man 2. Yes. Not the one from this year, the one from <laughs> 2004. Yes, not Marvel's Spider-Man 2, although I guess it kind of is. They all are, but <laughs> yeah. This is a PS2 game. It was one of the most successful open world games at the time. Uh, I remember this game came out, and if you didn't have a PlayStation, you were just like, oh my God, look what I'm missing. Mm-hmm. You, it, you, it was a very, you know, it doesn't hold up to the Spider-Man games of the modern era, but they were really impressive at the time. And yeah. and as you were mentioning about, you know, voice actors, they got some of the movie's actual voice actors mm-hmm. in the movie, which made it feel legitimate and not like a cheap, you know, knockoff. Yeah, this would probably be number two on my personal list, just because the, the web swinging alone was really a leap forward. Mm-hmm. It was done so well that it sort of set the bar and set the template for what web swinging would be in subsequent spider games. I don't know that it's been topped. The most recent swinging and webbing is wonderful and probably better. The Spider-Man 2 web swinging... Definitely better. Was, <laughs> it, was a, it was a little more like user intensive. You know, it, it wasn't just automated. There was uh, some, some challenge associated with it, as I recall, but it felt incredible at the time. I mean, that was 2004. So our standards were a little bit lower for graphics and for navigating an open world city. But it was a pretty trailblazing game. Mm, definitely. In the genre, but also for the many, many future Spider-Man games. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to number two. 
Yes. You want to reveal that, Ben? The Warriors. The Warriors. Yes. Yeah. Rockstar made a game of the Warriors. I don't know whether people remember that, but they should. I, I did not even know what that movie was when this game came out. <laughs> a Rockstar original, <laughs> the Warriors. They should make a movie of this. I knew there was a movie for the Warriors, yeah. but yeah. seeing as how I was not alive in 1979 <laughs> when the Warriors movie came out, mm-hmm. I was a little shocked when the Warriors video game came out in 2005. Yeah. Speaking, I mean, that's later than an Avatar timeline, you know, like, (laughs) right. It's a good movie. I recommend people check out the movie, too. I I watched it after I played the game. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this doesn't hold up to the 2005 Rockstar classic. But it's it's a fun game that I guess kind of like bully, kind of like anything that's not Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption. Maybe people don't remember as well. But I have fond memories of it that. It was game a work. lot of fun. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just kind of beat em up gameplay, like running through New York, just the events of the city. But it, it had a lot of character and personality, as does the movie. Yeah. And a good beat em up combat, you know, lots of different weapons to pick up. And uh, they really did, you know, have a, a fun narrative to to go with it. I mean, you'd expect nothing less from Rockstar, but you know, they picked that movie for a reason and Mm -hmm. it was, it was a very strange decision, but a very successful game that I, I think would still be worth checking out today. Yeah. And our number one, I don't think we need to do a drum roll because there's zero suspense (laughs) here if you've been (laughs) anticipating all along, but it's GoldenEye 007. Of course it has to be. It has to be. Amazing really that that was a movie tie-in game. Because it has such a stature on its own that I don't even think of it that way. I mean, GoldenEye's a fine movie, you know, no shots at Pierce Brosnan or anything. But like when I think of GoldenEye, I think of the game way before I think of the movie. And the fact that that game came out of this genre where it's just like scorched earth, like everywhere you look, just terrible, shoddily made games. And then you have one of the best games ever that is also a movie (laughs) tie-in game, but is amazing thanks to Rare, which managed to translate first-person shooting to consoles in a way that just dominated our childhoods. I mean, the fact that that this came out of this genre is one of the great gaming upsets of all time. And the plot is so unimportant. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like, I've seen GoldenEye probably twice in my life, the movie. And as far as I'm concerned, the plot of that movie is that Someone is playing as a very short character yeah, and, someone slapping picked job. and slapping everybody. I think that's yeah. the plot of the movie, right? Yeah, actually, that's what playing Avatar is like. You're playing against a bunch of odd jobs, basically. That's what it feels like when they're like shooting you and you can't see yeah. them. It's like they're all they're all playing as odd jobs. It's yeah, it's, it's unfair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you played GoldenEye lately? Because it's been screwed up and re-released. Does it hold up? I've I've played it through emulators and I've played the yeah. recent re-releases the frame rate is <laughs> is is really hard yeah it's really you, you kind of can't believe that you spent that many hours like hunched in front of a CRT monitor, <laughs> like hopped up on Dr. Pepper and Pizza Hut yeah. as a child. It, it wasn't perfect dark bad, but it was bad. And played with that frame rate in yeah. in one quadrant of a tiny CRT screen. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did we do this? I know. But it doesn't hold up like a little. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> at the time, it, I think it was really a, you had to be there thing. Because if you put a kid down in front of this game, I don't think that they will find anything particularly compelling about it right 
Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, it's brilliance, the ways in which it was groundbreaking and trailblazing doesn't really translate when you've been playing the games that came after that. Yeah, like you're walking around Goldeneye, you can't yeah. even build a house, you know? <laughs> All the kids are so Fortnited out now. It's like, mm-hmm. what's the what's the point of shooting someone if I can't just create a three-story home while you're trying to kill me, you know? Yeah. Also, I have gone back and played it on N64, and the single joystick controls, which I will forever love you, N64, but it is really <laughs> hard to go back to that after having dual joysticks, you know, yeah, it's, 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 tough. it's crazy. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Incredible game though at the time yeah. and uh, definitely deserves the top honors here. Any honorable mentions or extremely dishonorable mentions? Yeah. Some real dishonorable mentions. <laughs> so when I, when I think about movie games, the, the, you know, the defining memory of my childhood in, in that heyday of bad adaptations is, the Surf Ninjas game mm. on Game Gear from 1993. <laughs> you might have missed it. I think I did. You might have missed the movie Surf Ninjas. I think based on the title Surf Ninjas, that gets you halfway there to understanding what the movie was like. <laughs> I don't know. I'm but, in based on that pitch, but <laughs> maybe not on the, the product. This is a kid's movie that came out in like the peak of the adaptation era of like 1993 to the point where they planned the movie and the game at the same time and there's one point in the movie where the the characters like don't really know what to do next Mm -hmm. and the kid in the movie has a game gear and he starts playing the surf ninjas game gear game whoa so meta to find out what is going to happen next Mm-hmm. And then they end up in this fight scene where the kid, like the two people are are fighting and the kid is just in the corner with the game gear being like, oh, there's an octopus over here. I should. <laughs> and he grabs like the octopus based on what he sees in the game. And he puts the octopus in the face of a bad guy. And, uh-huh. and it's just so it doesn't make any sense at all and it's just such a clear like advertisement for the video game. Like. If you're a kid, you came out of that movie, you're like, oh, well, obviously I need to get that game that I just yeah. was watching them play for an so, hour and a half. So it should be buried in the <laughs> New Mexico mass grave along with E.T. that almost mm. destroyed the video game industry. Yeah, so I, let's move on to E.T. That was another <laughs> one I wanted to mention. <laughs> I owned this game as a kid. This is wow. one of the first video games I ever owned because I got an Atari 2600 uh, my parents must have got it at a deep discount in like 1988. I was like four. I got an Atari 2600 with ET, and I think you have to remember it has a legacy of being one of the worst games of all time. And I would argue that it's not that bad because wow. almost every Atari 2600 game it's is objectively terrible. <laughs> okay. You yeah. have like Pitfall and Space Invaders and maybe 15 others that are actually good and everything else is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> like the ceiling and, was so low that, that the floor can't be that far below it. Yeah, so like the E.T. being a bad game, like sure, like most Atari games are bad, but you know what? It was cool that you could see E.T. You could recognize a movie property in a video game. And at that time, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. This is before this entire era of garbage thrown upon us. Uh, so 
it, you know, to, as a four year old, at least it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty fun. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's amazing that you're still here talking about and loving video games all these decades later when that was your introduction to the medium. But I think what that really goes to show is that when you're a kid, you will play any garbage and you oh, will yeah. think it's good. You know, it, <laughs> I, I was there with you. I was playing crappy games. I didn't know the difference really between a great game and a terrible game. It's like, ooh, I can move some pixels around a screen. This is awesome. You know, yeah. only when you get older do you hopefully develop some, some taste, some discernment so that you can tell from the good from the bad. Very true. Do you have any honorable mentions? I have one left if you want to. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the last thing I wanted to mention in this horrible genre is the 1995 Sega Saturn game, Street Fighter the Movie. <laughs> so I wanted to bring this up. Street Fighter the Movie, the game. Yeah. Right, exactly. So they made a Street Fighter movie. If, if, if you're old, you'll remember this. It starred Jean-Claude Van Damme as Guile, and you had Raul Julia as M. Bison. Yep. And the movie's bad. It's a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's actually tragically Raul Julia's last movie role, mm-hmm. which is very sad for a great actor uh, wasted in Street Fighter the movie. So they <laughs> they made the movie based on Street Fighter Two, obviously the game, and then they made a video game based on the movie that is based on the game. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what you had on Sega Saturn is this game that operates like a street fighter game except all the graphics are worse because instead of being like a fun you know art style they're like photorealistic snaps of the actors into very janky animations uh that are it's just really terrible the only cool yeah. thing about it is like oh that's jean-claude van damme yeah you know street fighter game that looks and plays worse than the, the game that the movie is based on, it's a really weird, weird product of a very particular time in gaming. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that time is over or mostly over. Maybe it still sort of survives on mobile. But for the most part, games are doing their own thing. They're telling their own original stories that stand up to something that might be in a movie. Or if they are licensing something, then they're putting their own spin on that. And that's nice. We still get tons of stuff that's set in worlds and universes that we know and love. It's always cool to step into those ourselves, but Mm. we don't have to just retrace the steps that we've already seen. And, you know, I think that some games that really push that forward, like Enter the Matrix, maybe, or The Matrix Online, where it was like, hey, you know, this is like pioneering transmedia storytelling. This is like the games stand up to the movies. These are just as canonical. They're just as important, which I know is confusing for everyone when it's like, wait, Morpheus died? in a video game that I never played. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> it was a great game. <laughs> yeah, really good th- game. Those were, those were fun games, right? So most of them are, are kind of like not quite paint by numbers, just following the exact parameters of the movie. They take some liberties. They do something original. And I'm glad. But you know what? We have to salute at least the ones that managed to work within those constraints and overcome all the obstacles. Well done. <laughs> so... Jeff Keeley is definitely telling us that it's time to wrap up about an hour ago. So we're going to close here. Thank you, as always, for coming on, Matt. Loved being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you to Devin Ronaldo for producing and to Arjuna Ramkpal for serving as senior podcast manager. Stay tuned for multiple House of Ours on that feed and more Ringerverse pods coming to you next week. And of course, the big 
button mash pod that you've all been waiting for the games of the year conversation that will be coming later this month email us at ringerversegaming at gmail.com may awa be with you until next time (laughs) or as they say on pandora hi all of mine